102.5 FM, KXSFLP San Francisco and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Chiki Davis, author and well-being technology expert, who has written the book, How to Outsmart Your Smartphone. We will be talking about how you can outsmart your smartphone and have a more positive and effective experience with your device each day. Thank you for joining me today, Chiki. Thank you for having me. So let's start with why is the amount of time spent on devices, whether it's a smartphone, iPad, um, or even a computer, an issue today? Well, I think it's becoming more of an issue just because we're spending more time on our phone, more time on our phone, and less with other people. So we know that social interaction is one of the best things that we can do to boost our well-being. And if we're just staring at our phones all the time, we're not interacting with people that we meet on the street or at the grocery store or, you know, seeing our friends as often. So I think that is one of the biggest reasons why it's an issue. There has been many reports on the time spent on devices being linked to addiction, loneliness and depression. So how can we turn these challenges around and outsmart these trends in usage? Let's start with addiction. How would you address or recommend that we address addiction? Well, one of the things about addiction, broadly speaking, is that it's usually we become addicted to a substance or an activity or behavior because we're trying to regulate our emotions, right? We're trying to, you know, decrease negative feelings about something or distract ourselves from something. And my sense, um, and it seems the literature would suggest that smartphones are being used in the same way. So, we're having negative emotions, maybe we're bored, and so we turn to our phones, or maybe we're anxious about being in an awkward social situation, so we turn to our phones. And so it seems to me the best way to address that is to start learning how to manage um, our negative emotions, and there's a variety of ways to do that. Um, For example, um, cognitive reappraisal is a really great strategy where we learn to think of uh, our situations in a more positive light, or we can practice gratitude, or basically things to make us feel better And then we no longer need to rely on our phones so much. Do you think the content itself is addicting or you think it's more an internal response to something else where we're trying to self, I guess, medicate with the device? I mean, those are some good questions. I'm not, I don't have any um, insight into whether or not the content is addicting. We do know, for example, on social media that like when people get the little, you know, somebody checks a like on something we post, we get a little um, uh, dopamine rush. And so that can be one way in which social media is addicting. Um, but my sense is that it's also, it just has more to do with taking us away from the present moment in ways that distract us and help us uh, decrease our negative emotions. What about addressing loneliness? That's well, it seems like, oh, p- pardon? Oh, no, it's, it, they're saying the... The rate of loneliness loneliness has increased. So I'm curious, how would you address that? Yeah, well, in my uh, book, Outsmart Your Smartphone, I talk a little bit about um, both ways we can address loneliness in person and on our devices. So I know there's been a lot of talk these days about technology kind of being evil and we shouldn't be on it at all. Um, and there's some evidence to support that, indeed, spending time with the people we love and the people around us tends to be great for well-being. But I don't feel like it's totally practical to say, hey, we should all just give up our devices and um, a way to potentially address loneliness even without giving up our devices is to spend more time online connecting with people. So like messaging people instead of scrolling through a social media wall or, you know, commenting on people's posts instead of just uh, sharing uh, photos that have to do with ourselves. So it's, it's really about learning to practice strategies that decrease loneliness, both in real life and online. So do you think that we actually have to watch the amount of time that we're spending on the devices? Like put a, I don't know, I think they have a screen time, right? 
um, where they show you how much time you're spending and taking ourselves off of it somehow? Yeah. Yeah, I hear that um, like all the phones now are coming with these little apps that show you how much time you're spending on um, various apps like YouTube and social media and things like that. And I have found from talking to people that those are really useful and kind of helping people build awareness of what their kind of smartphone addiction will say is like people are like, oh, my God, I had no idea I spent four hours on Facebook today. Um, and so I don't necessarily think that that is a solution to the problem, but it does help build awareness that there is a problem. And that's one of the things that has just shocked me um, after writing this book is that everybody I talk to is like, oh, I know just the person who should read this book, you know, such and such is always on their phone. But nobody thinks that they have a problem. So I'm, I'm so excited about um, these new tools for tracking usage because I think it's going to really help people see that. You know, maybe being on our devices all the time isn't really the way we want to be spending all of our time. Well, interestingly, Washington Post uh, published an article indicating that young adults are spending eight hours to nine hours on devices. And I was just like, wow. And so I I know it's more than one third, but that seems like even more in some ways, right? Because that's a full day, more than a full day. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with that study, but certainly, like, if you take into consideration the fact that many of us work on our computers all day, uh, many of us work remotely, and then um, I can't remember what the statistic is, but there was a study done that showed we pick up our phones. Most The average number of time we pick up our phones is, like, in the hundreds per day. And so we are just, like, constantly attached to these things. Um, and I know some of the research points to that being bad for our well-being. Certainly that's what the concern is. Uh, but there is other research that shows that it really depends on how we use our devices. So if we're, you know, engaging in behaviors like looking through social media um, and not connecting with others, that tends to be worse for our well-being. So I don't necessarily think we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. So they've correlated, though, the amount of time that you spend on devices is tied to depression, and maybe even deeper depression. What's your thought on that? That does make sense, since most of the things that we're doing on our phones are not so good for our well-being. And so it makes sense that the more time we're doing that, the less time we're spending with other people and doing things that are good for our well-being. You had conveyed before the show, though, that the highest rate of loneliness is among teenagers and young adults. And... There are two reasons why. Can you highlight this for us? So we know that uh, young adults are uh, um, engaging in smartphone usage more. It, there's also some evidence pointing to the idea of um, parenting practices are different in this generation. So like a lot of parents are constantly involved and kids aren't hanging out with other kids as often. So I'm not totally sure whether one or the other of these is contributing to issues with well-being more so than the other, but they're both things that seem to be contributing to kids not spending as much social time with each other. So it could be that the parents are helicopter parents or the parents are spending more time with the parents or being more watchful rather than the kids roaming out on their own. Yeah, that that seems to be the case. And and even like um, the laws have changed a lot in the last chunk of years. So um, I know when I was growing up, it wasn't a law that um, you had to have a babysitter with you when you're when you stayed home. Um, But these days, there's there's all these rules. So kids are not having the opportunity to hang out with other kids as much. So they're spending more time either with a sitter or an adult rather than with other kids exploring, figuring things out if not getting in trouble. That's what it seems like, yeah. So would you recommend that um, that this get flipped? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think, it's, again, it's super important that people um, have meaningful and frequent social interactions with other people. And I'm not, that doesn't mean to say that kids can't have meaningful interactions with their parents. They certainly can, and that's really important. But in terms of building the types of social skills they need to be happy, healthy, functioning adults, um, like it's important for young people to hang out with other young people. So uh, depending on sort of the amount of um, like control or, or whatever a parent has in, in their family, like having play dates or, you know, birthday parties or just having other kids around or 
inviting over the neighbors or just whatever you can do to create more social interactions for kiddos and also for adults too. Adults are not having as many social interactions. So it's, it's key to focus on that. Oh, that's interesting that you said adults are not having as many social interactions because there's so many articles are pointing to teenagers, college students, and young adults, but it sounds like it's across the board. It does seem like it's across the board. I mean, I think we were talking uh, before this show about how a lot of the research is in young adults, but certainly, you know, you look around, like if you, like when I take the train to work, you look around and everyone's on their phone. Or like you're in the line at the grocery store and everyone's on their phone. So we're, we're missing out on these opportunities to connect with each other. Do you think that it used to be more natural for people to just strike up a conversation, even though it's a stranger next to him or her? I, I, 100% in certain, at least in certain circumstances. Uh, for example, like we used to have to ask people when we got lost for directions. And now we have our phones and there's no need for that. Or like we used to have to, you know, at least share like a word or two with the cashier at the store. But now we can just shop on Amazon. So certainly we're missing out on at least a little bit of these sort of um, casual connections. So you mentioned before the show as well that no one wants to be alone with their feelings, right? And the device usage could be certainly a good coping strategy to be alone and not address one's underlying issues. Can you talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. So I I don't know if other folks are like me, but for the people I've talked to, um, just imagine like you're waiting alone at a restaurant, waiting, you know, a couple of minutes for a friend to arrive. What do you do? You pull out your phone, right? But I really encourage people to address or ask themselves why that is like, Uh, Do you pull it out because you're bored? That's a negative emotion you're kind of trying to avoid. Or do you pull it out because you feel awkward kind of standing there staring at the wall or at other people? Or basically, when we pull out our phones, it's often an attempt to not be alone with the feelings that we're having. And if you just pause and don't pull out your phone, it's really kind of interesting what emotions come up. Um, So I encourage everybody to try that and just kind of be like, hey, this is like what I actually feel. (laughs) It's not so bad, I promise. So what you're saying is that people are not comfortable with asking themselves what they're feeling and where that's coming from? Human emotions are complicated, right? There, it's nobody really wants to feel, you know, sad or depressed or anxious or anything bad. And if those emotions come up, then it's easier to just distract yourself and like be like, oh, I'm gonna like watch this funny video, or maybe I'm gonna just like read this article on my phone or whatever. But those be becoming aware of those emotions um, through uh, awareness is basically like a type of mindfulness, like being present in your body. You can identify those emotions, and then they kind of start to resolve themselves, or you can engage in actions to help resolve those emotions. So one of the big things I worry about with this kind of technological revolution is that we're getting on our phones and we're not dealing with these emotions that are kind of getting trapped in us. So I really encourage people to take kind of mindful moments or little breaks where they don't pull out their phones. Or maybe you go out with friends for the evening and you don't bring your phone with you. And then you kind of just like experience what it's like to be human and have these human emotions. And then you're like, hey, like this isn't so bad. In fact, this might feel really good. It does usually feel really good after, especially after you get used to it. And so I just, I want people to try it and then hopefully they realize it's not as scary as they thought. We're going to take a quick break and thank our underwriters. Be back on Outsmarting Your Smartphone with Cheeky Davis. Support for KXSF comes from Lady Falcon Coffee Club, an iconoclastic, only in San Francisco, coffee roastery. Born and blended by the beach in the outer sunset and female-owned and operated, look for Lady Falcon Coffee Club beans at Byright, Williams-Sonoma, Gus's, Rainbow Grocery, Good Eggs, and other fine food vendors, or at their vintage mobile coffee truck about town. Learn more by visiting their website at ladyfalconcoffeeclub.com. Thanks for supporting San Francisco Community Radio. Keep real radio alive, people. Live, local, real radio. That's why you're here listening to KXSF, right? 
on 102.5 FM San Francisco. We give you more of what you want, music and programming curated by actual human beings who live locally in your neighborhoods, plus live music and interviews with local artists and bands. But to stay on the air, KXSF really needs your help. Donate now to KXSF by going online to www.kxsf.fm and clicking on donate. It's 100% tax deductible. Keep real radio alive in San Francisco and donate now, everyone. Thank you so much. This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. I was talking with Cheeky Davis before the break about how to not be alone with just your phone. The question I have is, should we have regulations that then ask people not to be on their phones in public places? Would that help? Oh, my gosh. That's such, that's such a tough question, though, right? Because, like, if our goal as a society is to have, you know, is to have better well-being and, and more social connection and um, build even communication skills, then maybe so, but I don't know. I'm I'm not really the type of person that thinks we should be telling people how to live their lives. I just want people to see and choose um, behaviors that are good for them. So I, I, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> so going back, though, to the power of casual connections, you were saying that um, a lot of people are on their devices when there are moments of possible interaction encounters. Why is that important? Yeah, well, there's there's this um, whole body of research that shows that even having a tiny little social interaction with someone we don't know can boost uh, momentary happiness and well-being. So, like, if you're at the store waiting in line and on your phone, you're going to miss an opportunity to have a, a, a connection with somebody standing in line next to you. Or these days, I even see people walking down the street like glued to their phones, I'm nervous they're going to trip over their own feet, instead of having just like a smile or a hello with a person who passes them by on the street. And if we switch this behavior and start having these casual connections, it's a really kind of like quick, easy way, I think, to boost our happiness and well-being just a little bit. But it feels like people think it's awkward to make eye contact and to smile even like, we don't want the other person to get the wrong idea. Or do you think that there's, like, this judgment yeah. going on of what other people are going to think, and that's why we're not doing it? I mean, it didn't used to be like that, right? So I don't know what happened and why we became like that, but I absolutely agree with you that we feel like that now. But, like, the cool thing about just, like, doing it anyway is it stops feeling awkward. <laughs> like... That's like the the funny thing is that a lot of this is in our head and we're like, oh, my God, what is this other person thinking about me? Or, you know, I don't I don't really want to engage with this person. That would be weird or they don't know me or whatever. But by doing so, we can have these little connections that are good for us. And actually, I think in the long run, you stop being so afraid of that and then it becomes easier to connect in all sorts of circumstances. You also mentioned that the quality of conversation is affected by our use of devices, especially when we're around other people. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there was, I think it was a Pew study, I believe, that looked at um, some large percentage of people said that they feel like um, if the other person has a cell phone present, it hurts the quality of the conversation. And like a really interesting thing about that is that um, even if we have our phones present and we're using our phones, it hurts our experience of the moment. So we may think that like pinging into our phone to check social media or even like I know a lot of people these days will be like, oh, I don't know if that's true. Let me fact check it real quick. Just having our phones present tends to reduce our enjoyment of our experiences. And so we think that we're helping improve the experience, but the data shows that that's not true. It's so interesting that you point that out because a lot of people do say, oh, let me look that up and and see if it's true or uh, let's see where it is. And, and then suddenly the phone is out and then they're on the phone. So what you're saying is that all the time. Right. So you're saying don't look up, you know, what you're talking about. 
just keep on going with the conversation because it's not going to be productive in the terms of your connection, where you're going with the connection, because now it's all focused on the screen. Yeah, you all focus on the screen. It interrupts sort of the flow or whatever it is that that connection is built of. You're like, oh, time out. Let me like fact check this thing. And it's like, where were you? What were you feeling? Your emotions get interrupted. And so I think there was another study that shows even having a cell phone present on the table while two people are having an interaction hurts well-being. So I take this research very seriously and try to live my life as, you know, as close to um, like to promote well-being as much as I possibly can. And so I try to encourage people to try these tricks, see if it makes a difference for you. If not, then. You also mentioned that it reduces empathy and trust. Can you talk about that? What is what is trust? It comes from, you know, listening and making eye contact and like having and being empathetic and like all these things. And so it makes sense that if you're not doing those things, then trust could be eroded. Um, Okay, so your book is about how to turn the online experience into a positive one or empowering experience. So how does one do this? Can you talk to us about how what wise usage looks like? Yeah, so I I wrote this book um, because there's so much information these days about how, you know, we should go on a digital detox and we should not use our phones. And I agree with all that and include some of that in the book. But I was increasingly feeling like that wasn't a realistic goal for most people. You know, many of us rely on our phones and our computers and everything for work, for getting around, for everything. And so... um, I started thinking about the positive psychology research that shows there's all these different ways to promote well-being, and I didn't see why that couldn't be applied online. And so the book talks a lot about how we can interact with the Internet and with our phones in ways that are actually good for well-being. So, for example, you know, instead of cruising through your, your social media wall and seeing all the awesome things everybody else has done and comparing yourself to their great lives, which often can you know, depress people or make them feel uh, less good, you could hop onto social media and, and send a message to someone you haven't talked to in a long time or uh, share a funny video with people who you think could benefit from it or even send a note of gratitude like, hey, Sally, thanks so much for you know coming over last week. It was really great to see you and I really appreciate your feedback on such and such an issue. Um, doing these types of things we know promote well-being and there's no reason why that should be different in an online context. Engage online in a positive way yeah. as much as you can. And it sounds like you should also interact, like have real interactions the best that you can in that setting. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about interacting. And I think a lot of the time when we're online, we're, you know, we're reading an article or we're looking at some content and we're not having engagements. But I think the original goal of social media was to be social. And so if there are ways that you can choose to engage with social media um, that are more social and more interactive, then the better off you're likely to be. And there is some research to support this, um, although it needs, they need to do a few more studies. What about joining online communities? Is there, yeah, is absolutely. A, okay, so you just have to be able to find them. Yeah, so I know that I think there's some concern about um, people joining online communities that help that kind of like reinforce their beliefs, which, I mean, we want to all stay open-minded to people of all walks of life, but certainly that feeling of connection in online groups can be very strong. I know people share a lot of personal details and um, they connect with people and are very vulnerable in those contexts and all those things lead to stronger social connections. So, Are most of these groups on Facebook or are they, or they could be anywhere? You know, I think they could definitely be anywhere. Yeah, I was thinking there must be apps too. Oh, I did see a friend app actually. I was like amazed that you could actually find a friend on a friend app. <laughs> so anything's possible online. I know, right? <laughs> okay, so so we can use technology to be better connected with others rather than feeling isolated. Um, and then, but it's hard to empathize and build trust through apps, right? Well, we're missing some key pieces. I, I think it's entirely possible, but um, I think we were talking just a minute ago about, you know, seeing the emotion on someone's face or their body language or, you know, people use their hands when they talk or, you know, just a slight tone 
the changes in someone's voice when you've said something that hurts their feelings. None of that stuff is present in text. And so that can be a challenge when it comes to building meaningful connections and also learning about social skills, right? Like if you say something hurtful online, you may never know that that hurts someone. And so you could be just like hurting the relationship without even realizing it and now I'm without correcting it. So there are those types of nuances that I think people are concerned about. And it, that's why it's so important to also continue connecting um, in real life. It sounds like you should choose face-to-face time as much as possible, even the smallest opportunities um, with strangers in line or on the bus. Um, you also talked about using health and wellness tools online that, as a way of promoting a sense of self-efficacy and wellness or happiness. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So how I became interested in this topic was from um, my work in building online wellness tools. So I've worked on the development of all sorts of like apps and products and things like that that teach people the skills they need to promote well-being. And so I'm still a big advocate of that. Like um, an app that I didn't work on, but I'm a big fan of is um, Happify, and it teaches you all these different strategies for boosting well-being. And then there's all sorts of mindfulness apps, and these things can be a really useful way to make use of the internet and the availability of information to promote well-being. What about um, c- communication for self-expression? You know, we always need an outlet for that. Do you see apps where I, I don't know whether you can share art or a music some way of being able to have this peer-to-peer experience yeah I, I I don't know I imagine all of those apps would be helpful there is some research that shows that um, the more one I think it's the more one feels they're able to express themselves online the greater well-being they have or or the greater well-being they have as a result of that experience so certainly self-expression seems to be really important um, now how People are defining that. I'm not sure. Maybe they just mean the ability to be like, hey, I have this for dinner. Maybe that's self-expression. Or maybe it's how you defined it, uh, sharing art or music or videos or whatever. But uh, certainly um, that seems like a great way to, you know, to, sh- to give what you have to offer to the world, which seems like a, a great way to promote well-being. If you are doing self-expression that means something to you that you can share with others, that would be meaningful online. And then you could send, you can interact more um, positively by sending gratitude messages and sending other people inspiration. It's like just messages of positivity and love, let's say. And don't, and what you're seeing is like, don't be scrolling down social media and walls and doing comparisons. Is that the best way to sum up? That's that's what I suggest. Yeah. So there, there is. The research shows that passively viewing social media tends to be um, what's not so good for our well-being. But active engagement uh, in social media or online can be potentially good for our well-being. So, yeah, absolutely, like sharing gratitude messages or um, I think in my perfect world, social media would be a place where everybody's just like contributing to this community of good stuff. So it wouldn't be so much look at this picture of me, look where I went, look what I ate. It would be more like, hey, like, here's this video of something I think you would like, or here's a joke that I think you would enjoy. And if social media was like that, then pursuing our walls would probably not have such a negative impact on our well-being. You created a 28-day challenge. Can you talk about it and what's the goal, how this would work? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the book's filled with all sorts of tips and tricks for outsmarting your smartphone. But I know that that can be a big undertaking and and people might want to start with something a little bit more manageable. So I created a 28-day challenge with a bunch of tips and tricks, like you do one tiny little thing for 28 days that help you have a better relationship with technology. So like you'll do things like, you know, delete some apps on your phone or make an effort to text someone you haven't reached out to in a long time. So they're just tiny little things you can do. And uh, you can get that challenge on my website. Sounds great. If we were to say, what are the top five strategy then from this 28-day challenge for outsmarting your smartphone, what would they be? I think one of the most important things in the digital age is to just practice kindness 
online and offline, but I kind of want to focus on the online context because so much of what we do online is is very self-focused. Like I said, we're, you know, taking pictures of ourselves and sharing our successes on our vacations. But if we practice more kindness online, then we not only benefit because kindness promotes well-being, but other people benefit too. So I think that we sort of need to change our frame of reference to start focusing more on others and being kind online. Um, Another thing that's really important is making meaningful connections. And I know we talked a little bit about uh, the casual connections with the barista or the butcher or the cashier or somebody passing by on the street. That's really important. But it's also really important that we um, practice authenticity and be ourselves with the people that we're surrounded with. So I think... um, I don't necessarily know if this is because of social media or just we've gotten in the habit of kind of showing the best versions of ourselves online. And that kind of translates into the real world, too. And so we need to be sure that we are vulnerable with the people we care about so we can build those stronger connections and actually show, you know, our true feelings and share our true beliefs with the people we're around. Um, Another thing we can do is uh, take a social media break. Now, (laughs) I know not everybody wants to do this because we like our social media, but I do encourage people to take at least, you know, a short break every now and then, maybe try a week off of social media because there is research that shows that taking these social media breaks, it has been found to result in improvements in well-being. And what I find, um, I've done these, is that when I do it, I'm like, oh, my God, that feels so good. I don't even really want to go back to social media or I don't want to go back as much. So after I take a break, I might be, less inclined to spend as much time there. And I'm hoping the same is true for you. Uh, Another thing we can do is to kind of engage in social fitness or just like be more social, just like we need to exercise our muscles to get strong at the gym. Um, In order to be kind of like socially and emotionally well, we need to engage in social interactions and have conversations and be authentic and be ourselves. And so some ways to do this are to, you know, uh, join a a religious group if that is your preference or do some sort of physical activity like CrossFit or Zumba or something that's social. But take it a step further and make sure you're interacting with the people that are around you in those contexts. And then one last one would be to try uh, like a tech-free weekend. So it's a little terrifying to not have any of our tech toys around us. But I do encourage people to just take a little break. Um, You'll get more in touch with, you know, your real emotions and real feelings and what's going on with you. And hopefully can kind of work through some of those. You'll also just probably start to realize that you don't necessarily need tech around all the time. I think we've gotten in the habit of just having our tools with us constantly. and, And we forget what it's like not to have them. And I actually did this a few years ago, uh, I went uh, to Mexico with my mom, and there just—I didn't have my phone, and there just there wasn't internet, and there wasn't a TV, and there wasn't radio. There was nothing, and it wasn't an intentional tech-free uh, week. But when I came back, I just felt like alive, like I had been missing being with myself. And suddenly, I was like, "Oh, this is actually really important." So those are, you know, five strategies that could be really helpful to folks. Those sound like really great strategies. Time for a short break, and we'll turn more on outsmarting your smartphone. Support for KXSF is provided by Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned cooperative that has been serving San Francisco vegetarian food and providing a model for sustainable living since 1975. Rainbow is located at 1745 Folsom Street. Visit them online at rainbow.coop. KXSF would like to thank Rainbow Grocery for its continued support. It takes a village to keep independent radio alive and well in San Francisco. That's why KXSF 102.5 FM is looking for underwriters to support our station. If you are an individual who loves listening to local artists and bands, or you run a business that cares about cultural diversity in our city, your tax-deductible donation to San Francisco Community Radio is a great investment. 
To find out more about how to become an underwriter, go to www.kxsf.fm, click on Become an Underwriter, and help keep KXSF on the air through 2019. This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. Cheeky Davis and I were talking about the five strategies to outsmart your smartphone before the break. And I understand that you also do research on happiness. I do. Yes. So what would be your tips for the holiday season and going into the new year? Oh, great question. Yeah. So I think um, connecting with people over the holidays is obviously a great time. You know, you're not at work, have connections with people, just Gratitude tends to be one of the strategies that is like most helpful for folks in producing well-being. So, you know, they think it's called Thanksgiving for a reason and practicing gratitude this season could be a really helpful trick. What about um, if we had a New Year's resolution for being happier? What would what would that look like? Oh, that's great. So, I mean, I define happiness as both like emotionally happy as well as uh, sort of happiness of purpose or meaning in life. And since you mentioned it, I'm actually starting to think about what my New Year's resolutions will be. And uh, I'm focusing on decreasing stress, which is, at the moment, my definition of, of increasing happiness, right? Cause some people, you know, are dealing with workplace stress or family stress or whatever. So that is one approach. Um, I also, I, I definitely advocate for learning uh, a bunch of kind of like happiness skills. There's all sorts of skills you can use to improve your happiness, things like um, cognitive reappraisal, which I mentioned earlier, seeing the silver linings and things, or um, doing random acts of kindness. There's all these great strategies you can practice to build happiness. And I have a bunch of these on my website. Also, I recommend checking out um, uh, the Greater Good Science Center, which is a, a Berkeley organization that has tons of strategies for building your happiness. So you're building it into your New Year's resolution. Is that the best way to focus on happiness is to ask yourself the things that you want to work on that will make you happier? New Year's resolutions are kind of interesting because uh, one of the biggest problems with reaching our happiness goals is struggling with issues around motivation. You know, around the New Year, I see this every year. People are are really psyched. They're like, I'm going to do all these things. And then we do have that motivation for a short period of time. And then it fades, right? We get busy or distracted or we like tired or we just don't want to do it anymore. And so I found that like one of the best ways to actually achieve that goal is to make that use of that motivational period. Like in the beginning of the year, you not only set these goals, you like set up systems to keep yourself on track. And I actually include some of this in the Outsmart, your smartphone book, you know, schedule something in your calendar for like 10 minutes a week for the rest of the year. And then it's in your calendar. And so then you can keep doing it the whole time. Or like make a plan to see a friend, you know, for coffee once a week or once a month or whatever you have time for. And then once it's set, you don't have to worry about having the motivation to stick to your plan. Then it kind of just can automatically generate happiness without you having to uh, apply any additional effort. But is happiness a state of mind that you constantly have to work at? Like you were saying, seeing the silver lining and practicing gratitude or is it let's say the list of uh, activities that you've been thinking about doing like uh, lose weight or you know exercise more yeah great question I think the answer is is both happiness is something you continually have to work at but it gets easier so it's like basically you're training your brain to see the world in a different way and act in different ways that tend to be tend to promote happiness. And just like with any skill, once we do it a while, it gets easier and our brains kind of automate that. So for example, if you see the silver linings and you're like, okay, you know, tricky, see the silver lining today in such and such situation. And if you do that for long enough, it just becomes automatic where you don't even think about it anymore. You're like, oh, there's the good part. And like, here's the bad part, but you see the good part. The thing is, 
there's all these ups and downs that happen in our lives, things that stress us out, things that hurt our happiness. And so even though you sort of have this skill set built once you've been doing it a while, it needs kind of like refreshing. Um, there's research that shows that we need variety in the types of happiness activities we do in order to maintain our happiness. So like if I've been doing a gratitude list, let's say every day or every week for a year, I'm re- let's say I'm really good at, fine, at being grateful. And that's good and that helps me, but like it doesn't help as much over a period of time. I might need to switch to doing something different like practicing emotion regulation or doing random acts of kindness or something so that I not only have this one skill, I have these other skills and then that sort of can help maintain happiness in the longer term. So it sounds like throughout the year you should vary then your list or your focus on what it is that would be, that would make a difference. For your yeah, absolutely. That's a great strategy. The question I have is, is there evidence or science that shows that the positive thinking aspect of the happiness skills is um, endorphin lifting or, you know, if there's a positive correlation between how you feel physically with the reframing that you're doing, let's say, around silver lining or practicing gratitude? Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily know um, if it's endorphins. I'm not familiar with research on that, but there is there are changes in our brain when we think positive. There was some research conducted actually um, at the research lab I was in in grad school where we asked people to just like watch an, a movie that had some negative uh, scenes in it and people to experience their emotions naturally and then watch a, a similar movie and regulate their emotions to be like, okay, what's, what are the possible uh, benefits of the situation? What are the best outcomes that could come from the situation? And when they do that, there are uh, physiological and neuro, neurological changes in them. So we know that this stuff changes our physiology, which is pretty amazing. But you were saying that it's a sustaining part that's difficult, right? You either yeah. lose motivation <laughs> yeah. or focus. Is, are there strategies that you were saying? Well, you did say variety. Are there any other strategies that we can, um, mindset standpoint, where we can kind of help keep it going in terms of that? You would think that if you feel great, you would continue, but it sounds like it's not the case. It's not necessarily the case. But it's interesting that you mention mindset because um, there there is research to show that the more you think you can increase your happiness, the more that you can. So it's like very, the uh, growth mindset is like a big body of research, basically talking about how like, if you believe in uh, your ability to build a skill, then you can more easily build that skill. And the same thing is true for happiness, which is kind which is a skill. So certainly if you're someone who is like, no, like I'll never be happier then you're, self-sabotaging your ability to build happiness, unfortunately. But if you are like, yes, like I have the ability to increase my happiness, you're likely to have a greater chance of success, which is kind of interesting. So you have to believe that you can increase your happiness. And it certainly helps. It doesn't come to you. You have to work at it. For some, some people have to work at it. And some people kind of have that already. They already have that mindset. So have the mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So they're always focused on being happy or making themselves happy. Yeah, absolutely. Do people get a funk at the end of the year? I can't help asking that, right? It's the end of the year. And then now it's the start of the other. You know, I I saw a statistic once that um, I I believe it was like search results for the keyword depression go up around the holidays, which potentially suggests people get in a funk. At the same time, across all well-being type websites, which are the things that I work on, you see a decrease in, in users, probably because people are busy and they're doing other things. So I don't necessarily know if there's a funk, but some of the data would suggest there is. And then is there a lift back, back up in the beginning of the year when people start to think, okay, this is how I want to start the year, you know, positively? And do you see that uptake or uplift? I definitely see more people seeking out ways to to work on themselves, you know, I'm going to lose weight or build happiness or whatever the the goal is. And I don't I don't know if there's an impact of that. I hope there's an impact of that. 
Interesting. Okay, so if I said I'm going to work on happiness as my New Year's resolution, you would say to me, work on your mindset by looking at the silver lining of situations and to practice gratitude and hopefully have a variety of activities that I enjoy and want to continue to seek out. Is that the best way? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned enjoyment too, because basically, um, as far as we know, there's no one happiness strategy that works best for everyone. It really has to do with fit. So if I'm a person who really likes gratitude, then that's the strategy I should use. Or if I'm a person that like really gets a boost when I, you know, do something social, then that's what I should do. And so it's really a matter of trying a bunch of different things and figuring out what's the best fit for you and then sticking to it. And then I should lastly add that any interaction I have online should be focused on positive ones and proactive interaction. That would be ideally also a goal. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, if you're up for it, I'd say that's a great goal. Yeah, but I mean, you know, in terms of if I'm going to be online, right, make sure it's interactive and it's positive. It sounds like that's a goal we all have to make. If, that's, if our goal is to be happier and improve well-being, yeah, absolutely. The way we interact with technology is crucially affecting our happiness and well-being. And so learning these skills and interacting with technology in more positive ways is key to improving well-being in the digital age. Well, I appreciate you joining me on Spark today. Thank you, Chiki. Thank you so much.